Welcome to episode 49 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be talking about adaptations. Yeah, this was sort of prompted by a comment that we had had um, asking about, you know, film rights and and what you have control over and what you don't have control over. Um, But we actually thought we'd do a series about adaptations in general, Um, kind of what an adaptation is, how it may or may not change your, your material or, you know, what is, what constitutes a faithful adaptation, uh, or a transformative one, uh, or even adaptations across different media like radio or stage play. Um, so, but this week we decided we are going to focus mostly on faithful adaptations of the material. Generally, in this instance, we're going to be talking about like film and TV because uh, I think it's the most accessible for most people. So, um, yeah. So, why don't we start with what? How do we define a faithful adaptation of a book? I think. You know, there's kind of two ways to define what's really faithful. There's the adaptations that are faithful in a in a literal sense, you know, they more or less replicate all the parts of the book on the screen. And then there are adaptations that are faithful to the spirit or the feeling or the aesthetic of the property, but may take some other liberties and not you know, in order to achieve that kind of spiritual faithfulness, they may change some things uh, or leave things out or add things in, but still be a, a faithful adaptation because it's getting to the heart of what the property is really about. Yeah, I always think of faithful adaptations, or rather the best faithful adaptations are ones that are faithful to the spirit, if not exactly the letter of the book. I agree. Um, because film and, and, and including TV in this, but film and books are just inherently two different mediums. One has an added dimension of visuals that the other does not like visuals and sound and movement that a book does not. So what works well uh, in a book doesn't necessarily mean it translates well on screen. Um, so I don't, I'm not one of those purists who are like, oh, they changed this from the book or, oh, they changed that from the book. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And that bothers me. I guess it depends on the nature of the changes made. (laughs) If I feel that the changes made in an adaptation that somehow violate what I think is a core property of the book, then I'll get upset. But if, if, if it's what I call cosmetic change or if it's even a small minor plot change that, you know, either ups the tension or changes the pace or things like that, I, I don't mind those necessarily. So 
Um, why don't we discuss some that we think are pretty faithful to the spirit and the letter of the book? Yeah, I thought one of the recent examples that came to my mind was The Martian. Mm. I thought that was a pretty faithful adaptation. They did change some things. They streamlined it a little bit. They changed the delivery, you know, so in the book itself, he's kind of writing this journal in this log book. And of course, when you have a movie that takes place solely with one character, so there's no one to have dialogue with or to interact with for the most part, that's really different than having a book that's focused on the first person because we can we have access to the character's thoughts in a book where we might not necessarily have that in a film. And so then you have to explore different options. How are we going to do that? Are we going to do voiceover? You know, is he just going to talk aloud to himself? What's going to happen? And the way they got around that was instead of having him write journal entries, he was doing sort of video logs. So he was talking directly into the camera oftentimes because the audience was playing the part of whoever was going to be viewing these video logs once they were discovered. I thought it worked really well. I thought the movie um, adhered to the tone of the book. The book is really funny. You know, there's a lot of adventure and stress and, and things going on that are, you know, action related, but it really is a humorous book. And I thought the movie was funny as well. Um, so I, I really liked the Martian as an adaptation. Yeah, I like the adaptation too. I what I thought it did really well was not just the the translation from being kind of a first person interior narrative because the thing about film is you can't ever really have a first person narrative in a movie in the same way you can in in a in a book. Because you mm-hmm. can't necessarily have one character either doing a voiceover the whole time or like you could sort of do it in like a vlog style, I guess, but that's a format in a, we'll say like a 90 minute movie in a theater, I think would get pretty old pretty quickly. Um, so it's, I, I thought that they did a good job and also because so much of the Martian is process porn about how yeah. he was growing potatoes using his own poop on Mars, you know, <laughs> like, um, which is like really interesting, but there was a lot of actual hard science that went into that book that I, when I was reading it kind of skimmed over and found a little bit dull and I wanted to get a little bit more to just what happens as opposed to a description of why things happen. I just wanted to know what th- what happened. So I thought that the movie did a pretty good job of relaying the science to you by literally showing it to you. Right. As opposed to having somebody explain the scientific process to you in text. Uh, the other thing that I thought that the movie did very well was show the context around him. Because in the book, there are some third-person segments that sort of show what's going on on Earth when they realize that they've, that he's still alive, that, you know, what, you know, what do they do? Do they not tell the crew? Do they tell the crew? If they do, what's its rescue plan? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so I thought that they, it showed that aspect and made me feel 
feel more in a way for Mark Watney, even though it's not from his point of view, but having the context around him made me care more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree. I thought that the film was a pretty good adaptation. I think they changed some plot things around. I don't remember it specifically. I think they did. Yeah, they they cut some sections out. There were some setbacks in the novel that they just got rid of. And I'm, I think the ending might be slightly different. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think the ending is slightly different. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, on the whole, I think that was a very, very successful adaptation. Um, other faithful adaptations that actually I think work better on film than they actually did on the page is The Hunger Games. Um, partially because it is a reality TV format. Right. It's, you know, the books are basically it's like she's a contestant in reality TV. And I I was a little bit skeptical initially because I was like, well, so much of the Hunger Games is in Katniss's head about her scheming and her planning and her doing this and that. How is the movie going to convey that? And then I thought that was actually fairly successful. But the one I thought was even more successful was Catching Fire which was extremely faithful to the books. I don't think there was a single thing that was changed or cut. And strangely, when I read the book, I thought it was very uneven. And when I saw it as a movie, it felt perfectly placed. And I think part of that is the function of the POV, because all of these books are narrated from Katniss's point of view, so it's very narrow. And as much as I love my girl Katniss, she's kind of oblivious and dense and doesn't see a lot of the things going on. Whereas the film adaptations show us so the audience knows what's going on, even if Katniss is a little bit slower on the uptake. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives, I think, actually the a different sense of urgency to the story. So I thought that the adaptation of Catching Fire was pretty good. I also thought that the adaptation of Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2 were also pretty good. Um, so I, I thought inherently those are pretty successful in, in terms of both books, you know, a book series as well as an adaptation to screen. And in fact, I kind of like the screen adaptations a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I always think, too, when talking about faithful adaptations, I always think of the first two Harry Potter movies by Chris Columbus, directed by him. And those are very faithful to the books. Really incredibly faithful. There's so much in there to the point where... I think they were less interesting movies. I don't know if... Those ones I would call the most successful out of the eight movies that were made on the Harry Potter franchise, they're probably the most to the letter faithful to the source material. And I mean, I remember seeing the first one in in the theater and it was so great to see it. I I remember the scene when Hagrid takes Harry um, out back in the leaky cauldron and they go through to Diagon Alley yeah. and they tap the bricks and the bricks all, you know, move. And that seeing that moment in the film was like, that was the moment where I was like, wow, you know, it felt like, oh my God, I'm watching the Harry Potter movie. Um, 
But on the whole, I think they're kind of the least interesting in a lot of ways. And granted, the stories are simpler than some of the more complex stories that we get later on. But I think the third film, um, which was directed by Alfonso Quirrell, and he did something completely different where he was not at all faithful to the letter of the book, but I did think he was very faithful to the spirit of it. It felt, it's one of the most atmospheric movies out of all of them, um, but it, it felt to me like a Harry Potter property in the way that maybe the first two didn't and was much more atmospheric and um, kind of dark and gothic, but also, you know, whimsical. And, and it just was such an evocative movie and visually so interesting. So that even though I don't think that the plot made sense at all in that movie. <laughs> no, if you hadn't read, I, if you hadn't read the book, you would have been totally lost. You would have been so lost, so lost. They glossed over so many things. They left stuff out. They changed things around. It was just really a mess in terms of that. But I felt that the spirit of the film was, for me, um, really successful. You know, it's it's interesting because I actually, it's about that movie. That one sticks out in my mind because it feels the most like a Guadon film. Mm-hmm. And less like a Harry Potter film. Because if you've seen a lot of his other work, um, particularly he's pretty well known for The Mama Tambien, which is a really great movie, um, which I highly recommend. He, Alfonso Cuaron has a very distinct style. And that's really where I think adaptations can shine is whoever is doing the adapting essentially (laughs) because there's a director like Chris Columbus who in my opinion doesn't actually have a directorial style he's mostly known for uh mostly known for I think like kids comedies he did the Home Alone movies or at least the first two Home Mm. Alone movies um he did the god-awful Rent adaptation uh that was that was a mess that was a mess (laughs) Is just is just not maybe good. when we talk about terrible adaptations, <laughs> we can bring that one up. God, that was so disappointing. Oh, it was so bad. Um, he just doesn't really have any sort of distinct style or any his own interpretation, and maybe that's really what I wanted to get at. Was that so? I know a lot of people who get upset when oh, so and so differs from the movie to, to the book, but. Like I said, depending on who's helming the film and who's doing the adapting, the they are using your work or you know a book as source material. They're using it really more as inspiration to build a film from. Sort of the way I took Labyrinth, this kind of a starting point to write my book. They, in some ways, people will use your book as a starting point to make their own movie. So I know people have mixed feelings about this. Some people really just feel like the movie should be a straight, direct translation of book to screen. But in all honesty, the film as created property really just belongs to the studio. So 
the studio has license to do whatever they want with the material. And in my opinion, the really good ones are respectful of the original material, but still bring their own storytelling flair to it in the way that the Prisoner of Azkaban did. Yeah, they have a point of view. Yes. Um, Like, Quaron actually did another adaptation of a kid's book that I love, The Little Princess. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) I love this movie. Love this movie so much. Um, And it, 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 it does deviate from the book in quite a few ways. Most mm-hmm. notably, the ending. The ending, he yes. he changed the ending around because in the original novel, Sarah's father has died of some sort of fever, a yellow fever, I think, maybe, I don't remember, having believed that he lost his fortune. And then sort of by coincidence and magic or whatever, the person who moves next door to the place that Sarah is living happened to be her father's business partner. Um, And then they sort of discover each other and it all ends happily. But that is not what happens in the adaptation. In the adaptation, first of all, the adaptation takes takes place in a different time and place because the original Little Princess took place in like the 1880s in London. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Little Princess adaptation that Guadalupe directed took place in New York during the time of World War I. So a little bit different. So in this instant, Captain Crew, Sarah's father, um, gets injured in the trench, the you know the trenches of World War One, and suffers amnesia and cannot remember. And so then, by the simple fact uh, that he's not dead, actually changes the narrative and changes what the story is about. Um, because it's really in the end, it's an affirmation of familial familial love it's you know it's about family found family and and affirming that sort of love and it's extremely beautifully filmed um it's a wonderful movie yeah i also highly recommend this um so just check out all of Quaron's stuff he's great yeah. <laughs> um so you know there's that like there are other films in the harry potter franchise that i think kind of stylistically do a great job like i think um Order of the Phoenix is really good. Mm-hmm. Because in many ways, Order of the Phoenix is kind of a political thriller. <laughs> um, and that, and it was sort of shot as such, which I also really liked. And they also changed some of the plot things around. They made it a little bit less awkward and they streamlined all the events that go down. Because, you know, ultimately in Order of the Phoenix... Dumbledore's army gets discovered when one of them betrays Dumbledore's army to, what's her name, Umbridge. And in the book, it happens because they've all signed the document, and the document has been cursed, so if you betray the group, then the word sneak appears on your forehead in, in like, giant blistering pustules. Um, But that's really hard to convey on film. It's just too awkward to convey on film. So they just did a shortcut, essentially, where they had Cho give up Dumbledore's army. And it, it made sense in the context of the movie. It was a betrayal that Harry had to feel and go through. And it, it just made it a much tighter story, and so it moved the story along quicker. So I I do I do like um, Order of the Phoenix uh, 
because I do think that the liberties taken make it a tighter, better story. Compare that then to the last two Harry Potter movies, which are extremely faithful to Mm -hmm. the book. And again, if you had not read the books, I think a lot of the things that happened in them would have been like, what? (laughs) Yeah. The mirror thing, the the mirror that's brought up, like, and that he communicates with Aberforth with, like, all of that stuff is never in any of the previous movies. Yeah. So if you'd read the book, you would know what it's talking about. But if you were watching the film, and a lot of people I know had never read the books but had seen all the movies, were like, what was that about? What happened? What? Why? Um, so, unfortunately, in that case, I think it's an adaptation that is too dependent on its source material. And you can't, it doesn't stand alone. Yeah. Um. I mean, you can absolutely be too faithful. My example is Watchmen by Zack Snyder. It's it's awful, you guys. It's really bad. <laughs> I mean, I don't like any of Zack Snyder's films to begin with, but um so Watchmen is a graphic novel written by Alan Moore in the 1980s and it sort of comments kind of on superheroes of the 80s which at that time was going through a grim dark phase it's still kind of in a grim dark phase but like really in a grim dark phase this is when i believe around the time frank miller was writing the dark knight returns um and batman year one and he just kind of rebooted the whole thing and made everything dark grim and gritty um, so it's a little bit of a commentary on that. It was, I think, also a commentary on the kind of moral panic of the 1980s. Um, and it's also just, you know, kind of plotting. It's very intellectual as a comic. And so the thing that Jack, that Zack Snyder did was he basically recreated that graphic novel, like frame for frame, panel for panel. And oh my god, it's unwatchable. <laughs> and the thing is, it's like, I think what works well on a static panel on a comic book doesn't necessarily trans well, translate well to moving images on a screen. And any of the times that Zack Snyder took liberty with the source material, like the first five minutes of Watchmen, is actually really good. Um, the first five minutes of Watchmen, you, you might be able to find the credits online, is basically kind of gives you all the backstory of what happens in Watchmen. In like five minutes, it's set to Bob Dylan's The Times They Are Changing, and it kind of gives you a broad overview of of the history of comics from kind of like the golden age onward. It's brilliant. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be great. And, and it, then it wasn't. <laughs> um And then he also changed the ending of the movie. And again, it made it a much stronger movie because the ending of that movie, in the comic book, it was this enormously Baroque plot where people are off on an island, they're disappearing, and they're creating this genetic human, blah, 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 blah. It's like really overly complicated. And what Zack Snyder did was he essentially streamlined the process and kind of shifted how the villain accomplishes his deeds. And it was much better. It actually made much more sense in terms of characterization for the character of Ozymandias. So 
in that respect, yes, it was good, but otherwise it was just like too slavishly faithful to the source material. It just was like, look, 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 look. And it was just, it just wasn't good. <laughs> um, I mean, visually it can be, it was, it was interesting. I mean, I, I can't deny that Zack Snyder has an interesting visual style, but it just, just did just, no, it was bad. It was, it was yeah. very bad. <laughs> um, what about the Lord of the Rings? Oh, I love those. Mm-hmm. I think they're the best possible example or the best possible scenario you can have for adaptation of your work. <laughs> um, someone who loves your material enough to be faithful to the spirit of it, but not so slavishly faithful to it. Like clearly somebody who knows filmmaking enough to make the changes as necessary to make each of them good movies. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think you need to have read the Lord of the Rings to have enjoyed these movies. Um, and he, and, and Peter Jackson and his wife, uh, basically, kind of made cuts and shifted things around and I because I remember I have read Lord of the Rings multiple times and so I was a huge huge fan I was the kind of kid that studied how to speak Elvish in high school and like all that kind of nerdy stuff so I was very much somebody who was going to notice all those changes that they made and I didn't mind any of them in fact I thought Mm -hmm. in many of the cases it made it a much tighter film or just a much tighter story you know things like they they didn't go see Tom Bombadil in Fellowship. They got uh-huh. rid of the scouring of the Shire in Return of the King. Um, you know, and even down to small things like the first time we see Arwen in in the movies, the first time we see Arwen in the books is isn't after isn't until after they arrive in Rivendell, where she kind of rescues them from the writers in the uh-huh. film, and in that in the books it was another elf called Glorfindel who just kind of shows up and then disappears again so why not replace that character with someone who's going to have much more emotional impact later on so like a lot of those decisions the elves never showed up at Helm's Deep Uh, (laughs) you know all of those sorts of things that I knew was a difference but I didn't care because Peter Jackson knew what was important I think to mm-hmm. to keep and what he can kind of shift around to make a tighter, to make the stakes higher, to make things a much better cinematic experience. So I love those. I think possibly the best adapt. And then and then we get to the Hobbit, which is an example of a filmmaker. Again, I think who goes a little bit overboard in terms of his love for it. I think. Yeah, I was not a fan of the Hobbit movie. I think it missed the point in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, I think the first point that they missed was they tried to make it this like epic war movie. Which yeah, is not what the it, book's book is. <laughs> it's not. And I also feel like they tried yeah, they tried to make it an epic war movie. They tried to tell both Thorin and Bilbo's story on equal footing. And I don't think that was a wise 
choice. I think The Hobbit is really the story of Bilbo. It's his emotional arc and the ways that he changes. And in the background, we have the dwarves and Thorin's, you know, quest to regain his family's treasures and gold and take back the mountain and defeat Smog and all that stuff. And that's there. But I don't think that I don't think that Thorin has enough of an emotional arc to make that a prominent part of the plot. Like that's there to facilitate Bilbo's personal growth. Like Also, there was no need for this to be three movies. No, I didn't even watch the other two. I only saw the first one and then Same. I, I noped out. Same. I only I saw the out. first one and then I was like, yeah, no. I think what is different, significantly different between Hobbit and Lord of the Rings' books is tone. Mm-hmm. Because The Hobbit is really a kid's book. It's a story about a funny little guy named Bilbo Baggins. I mean, the name, his name is Bilbo Baggins. Um, who is a hobbit and he lives in a hole in the ground. And then all of a sudden a whole bunch of dwarves show up in his house one day and like drags him out of his house. Um, and Mm -hmm. it's very, in the book too, if you read it, it's kind of episodic. Like Bilbo kind of comes across one obstacle and then another obstacle and then another obstacle and then ultimately kind of overcomes them and then returns home. So it's kind of like a very classic kids, you know, leaving home and having adventures and coming back. And it's much more lighthearted and whimsical in tone than Lord of the Rings. And But the tone of the movie of The Hobbit was very off to me. Because, first of all, they tried to give it this sort of weight to it. But then at the same time, then the, then the dwarves show up and then they do their, like, singing. They do their song in Bilbo's house. And it was just, I was like, what is even happening here? And and the even the, the dwarves look different from The Hobbit to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. They look much more cartoonish, aside from the hot dwarves. Uh, cause, right. Because <laughs> um, Richard, you can't put any prosthetics on Richard Armitage's face. Like, come on, you guys. No. You can't do that. Um and also, like, Thranduil, like, Lee Pace's Thranduil is, like, super camp. Um, yeah. It was just there was, totally really weird. There were lots weird. of problems. And I really do think that's where they went wrong. They kind of, in my opinion, they tried to capitalize on what made Lord of the Rings successful and not really think about what makes The Hobbit as a book separate from Lord of the Rings successful. And I think that's why yeah. I don't think those adaptations, in my opinion, did as, are, did as well. Or just are as good. <laughs> um, I don't know. There, are there any adaptations that you either like or dislike? You like more than the book? Or faithful adaptations that you should like but don't? <laughs> um, you know, I really do like... The Princess Bride, both the book and the movie, but I do think the movie is more successful. Um, although I believe you're the person who told me recently that the movie was actually done first and then the book was yes. done second, which I didn't know. I thought the book was written first and then they made the movie. William Goldman had a career in Hollywood as a screenwriter, and I do believe The Princess mm-hmm. Bride is the only novel he's ever written. So he wrote the screenplay for The Princess Bride first, and then... Um, I think either during the course of filming or something or other, it was very, very successful. And uh, he thought, why not write a book about it? And the thing is, 
the book and the movie are just very different. And um, the story is ultimately the same, but the framing device around the book of The Princess Bride um, is actually quite clever and very kind of metatextual and sort of comments on, on storytelling and everything mm-hmm. like that, that the movie just, just, just does away with entire or just doesn't have wisely, I think. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, because but, yeah, the, I love that in the book, the novel of the princess bride is essentially the, this guy telling you, Oh, I just remember when I was a kid, my grandfather read this book to me called the princess bride by S Morgenstern. And then I decided I was going to read it to my son and, and, and so there's kind of a lot of asides here and there where the narrator kind of comes in and says, well, this part of the book was actually supposed to be political satire about these two countries and kingdoms. And um, so yeah. it's, it's very funny, but in it's not like the movie, which just kind of is a beautifully simple fairy tale. Which, you know, so, but yeah, William Goldman wrote the screenplay first for that one. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of American Psycho. The movie versus ah. book. <laughs> I have to confess, I do not like the book at all. I uh, also read it after I'd seen the film. So I actually really love the movie American Psycho. I think it's hilarious. And it is black comedy about sort of corporate culture, uh, uh, the soulless corporate culture of the 1980s. And it's very, very funny. Um, and the movie also makes things ambiguous as to whether or not Patrick Bateman actually committed any of the murders that he actually did, or if mm-hmm. he could get away with it simply because because everybody's so interchangeable in that culture. Mm-hmm. Whereas the book makes it kind of clear <laughs> And he's just such a disgusting person in the book. And just... The book really upset me. I read the book first, and then I watched the movie several years later. And, and the, I had a hard time with the book. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a tough read, and I did not think it was... It wasn't funny. It was wry in some parts. You know, it, there, were, there were some astute observations and commentary uh but it it's not comical in the way that the movie is no and i also think that's because brett easton ellis is too sincere to make the wry commentary that the movie does i mm-hmm. i have my own opinions about brett easton ellis's work <laughs> um <laughs> i think I, again, I, I do think he was a little too sincere and I think he identified and he had a lot of rage. And I think that's what comes across in American Psycho. Uh, there is no real rage. The character of Patrick Bateman has rage, but the film itself has a slightly different tone than the book did. And I really liked it. I thought the the film had something to say. Whereas, in my opinion, the book American Psycho was just rawr, rage. Yeah. Um, so in that respect, I do like the film adaptation better because I think it just is a smarter piece of media. It had a premise and it had a point of view and it was very clever about how it handled that point of view and the message it wanted to portray. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking about that, of that I really, really liked. Uh, 
is there anyone that I think I'm trying to think of any there I mean there are some like I I kind of tend to dislike certain adaptations of like the movie version of Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley I didn't really like the movie Mm. version of Jane Eyre with Michael Fassbender I didn't really like either and I don't know in that case if it's simply because I had watched BBC miniseries of both of those things right. that I just liked better. <laughs> um, because in the ter- in terms of the Keira Knightley adaptation, I think in my opinion what made what didn't work for me about that movie was that it, they tried to push this like really epic love story in a, in a weird way. They shot Elizabeth and Darcy and, like, clearly they're destined to be together kind of a way. And it just, to me, that was never the point of Pride and Prejudice. And what I liked particularly about the 1995 adaptation with Colin Firth was that it was funny. You know, uh, and it has that sort of wry Austin kind of subtly poking fun at the ridiculousness of the Mm -hmm. people around her. And so yeah. that that sense of humor is throughout the the Pride and Prejudice adaptation, and also I think it in a because of its understatedness is actually much more romantic than the film version with Keira mm-hmm. Knightley. Yeah, that's why I think the Sense and Sensibility adaptation with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet is fantastic. Oh, I love that. I love that movie. I love that it's movie. so funny. Uh, and Emma Thompson is just a queen. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I yeah I do love that adaptation. I think it's so good, and I think it's because Emma Thompson understands what makes Austin good, which is her sense of humor. Um, and the Jane Eyre one, I'd seen a really great one with Toby Stevens and Ruth Wilson. Uh, that really focused on the friendship between Jane and Rochester. And again, it wasn't like this angsty sort of tortured romance that it often comes across in movies. It was kind of really built on their friendship with each other and that I really liked. So, you know, it could just be that. And in, in the cases of both Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice, I liked the more faithful adaptation better. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I can necessarily judge Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice, the films, fairly, because they seem so... They also seem to rely on the fact that everyone knows the story. Yeah. So a lot... There's a kind of a lot of shorthand in them that I think if, you, if you're if you not familiar with the source material, then it wouldn't make any sense to you. And it's the same thing... Not the same thing, but what I think is so good in the Sense and Sensibility adaptation that Emma Thompson had done is that... It shows you the relationship with all of these characters, and so it shows it to you, and it, in but not in shorthand. So it makes you care, ultimately, about what happens to these to these girls, to these women. So, so yeah, I don't know. Do we have anything else to say on the subject of adaptations? Um, not on this particular. One, I think we covered a lot of really great faithful adaptations and what makes them successful. Yeah, I mean, the the honest truth is a lot, most authors are not going to ever get to this point. (laughs) Yeah. Not not everybody is going to get an adaptation of their book, and that's okay. 
And also, if you do happen to get an adaptation of your book and it's not good, then it doesn't really do anything. Or I don't think, in my opinion, it does harm to your book to have a bad adaptation. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, again, because like I said, the adaptation is the creative property of the studio. I think it reflects more poorly on the studio if they get it wrong than on the source material itself. So in my opinion, I think a book can only help you. Or uh, not a book. A movie can only help you. It can't really hurt you. Um, but yeah, if you get a bad one, like if you if you get like a Percy Jackson... <laughs> It hasn't affected this, the book series at all. The movie is yeah not very good, you guys. It's really terrible. <laughs> um, I, I don't even know why I bothered to watch it. I don't know what I was hoping for, but it certainly was not that. <laughs> um, so you know, and like I said, it hasn't it hasn't hurt Percy Jackson at all. So you know, you you live and you learn, I guess. <laughs> All right. So I think we've said our piece about faithful adaptations. So then why don't we move on to our next segments? What have you been working on? Um, not too much at the moment. I've been doing a little bit of writing, but not very much lately. I've been occupied with other stuff lately. I feel like my life is so crowded and so full of so many things at the moment. Um, so no, I haven't really been doing any, any writing in particular. I am still running, um, training for my 5k that's coming up on election day. I'm going to go vote and then I'm going to go run a 5k. Nice. So run off all the anxiety. It's true. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. Uh, so yeah, so I just, I took a run earlier today actually. And, uh, that's probably the main thing I'm working on right now. What about you? Working on book two. It has been harder writing book two and it, because of multiple factors, but I think it's just, I'm in a different mental space when you are writing book two um just there for the first time in my writing my writing life really there are other voices in my head alongside my own so as opposed to just worrying about whether the story pleases just me now i'm sort of thinking about well what will my agent think about it what will my editor think about it um what will people who are reading Winter Song because arcs have been distributed widely now, what will they think about it? And I, I don't like feeling crowded in my own creative mind. And what has been the hardest has been trying to shut all of that out and to just focus on the book. Um, it has, And I think part of the reason it's it's been taking so long is because I had no idea what book two was about for the longest time. And now I figured it out. Okay. But I think it's still taking a long time because just of all the psychic pressure and weight that I feel on me. So it's, it's just very different writing, writing under contract. Um, which is not something that I think a lot of people talk about all that often, you know, because a lot of people who do listen to our podcast are aspiring writers. So, I do realize that I'm in a position that's slightly different from, I think, a lot of our listeners. But 
there it, it and it's a little bit of a first world problem kind of a thing. Oh, poor me, but it just is a different place to be in when you're writing. It's no longer yours. You know, what makes writing so enjoyable or what did what made writing so enjoyable is that it was mine and it was my escape. It was something that I could do and it was just something that I could play with. But now I'm conscious that people will actually see what I'm working on. And that just puts a whole bunch of pressure on me. So, uh, so yeah, so that's a little bit of a deep confession from JJ about, about book two. But yeah, that's what I'm working on now. Um, have you been reading anything? I have. I have continued to read. I think my, my dry spell is finally over. Um, after I finished up The Raven King, I looked longingly at my library hold list and saw that nothing new had come in. So I went and I found something that was immediately available, and that was Vault of Dreamers by Kara O'Brien. And uh, I'd read part of her previous series before. She had a series um, birthmarked prized, and then I can't remember what the final title was, but it was essentially like a dystopian fairy tale, midwifery kind of a series um, that I enjoyed. I didn't finish it. I don't know why. I don't know if it's that I got distracted before the final book came out and then forgot about it or what, Um, but I did enjoy the first two. Vault of Dreamers is very different. It is a book centered on a reality TV show where the contestants are aware that they're on a reality TV show and that they get ratings and bad things happen if you fall below a certain number of ratings. Um, and this one is has a hard sci-fi component to it. Not hard sci-fi, but a strong sci-fi element. Um, it was okay. I finished it. Um there was a point at which I wasn't sure if I was going to or not, but I did. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, it was fine. It was not everything that I wanted it to be, but, uh, but I finished it and it was good. And, um, I'm very excited because today I got the update that my library hold has come through for the rose and the dagger. So that's going to be my next read. I'm very excited. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm in the midst of a book hangover from the, from Crooked Kingdom. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh my god, it's so good, you guys. Um, I think it. While I'm still recovering from book hangover, I am um, reading nonfiction. Actually, I'm reading. Uh, it's called Scandals of Classic Hollywood by Anne Helen Peterson. Ooh, she did. Re- she wrote a really great article, um, didn't she? Is she the one who? Now I can't think of what it's about, but it was like Hollywood scandals. No, you're looking at me with a blank face. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Well, I think it was her because really she is, I think, the best writer about Mm -hmm. Hollywood. Um, She did have a column at the Hairpin called, I think it was called Scandals of Classic Hollywood. That might be what I'm thinking of. Um, This is all new material, so it's not material that she's covered in her column. Um... She's basically not repurposed the essays, but she's rewritten some of them. So it's a little bit more serious. I think Anne Helen Pearson 
it's it's kind of weird to say that you know she's a really great scholar of image, but she is. She's really really good at, at dissecting celebrity image,、um, not just classic Hollywood, but like today. I think、mm-hmm. she also has columns at either like HuffPo or Me or Medium or some other places. I know she writes for a lot of different places where she sort of talks about Hollywood and image and celebrity and things like that. Um, she's really good at in this book in particular. So she goes through various Hollywood icons, what their image was, why their image came about, why it rose to prominence in the era that it did because of the social things that were going on at the time or whatever, what made them stand out compared to everybody else, and then why the scandal that hit that was. Around that star was kind of a big deal, and then how they handled the scandal. So it's very interesting. It's not like a narrative, so you know it's really kind of short, not short, but they're like essays about specific icons or couples.、Um, so, but I mean, you can find Anne Helen Peterson's writing all over the place online for free. So I'll try and find a couple articles and put them in the show notes. But she's great. She's. Really smart and also very funny, which is what I like about her. Yeah,、writing. I'm almost positive she did a piece about Brangelina.、Mm-hmm. I think that was her. I yeah, it, I think about their、right. breakup. And I'm almost positive she wrote a piece about that.、Um, so yeah, anytime I see her her byline anywhere, I'm like, oh, this must be good. <laughs>、mm-hmm. So that's what I'm reading now, and then I'm waiting for. The Midnight Star by Marie Lu to come out,、um, and Gemina by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff.、Mm-hmm. So they're not out yet, but I think by the time they come out, I will be over my book hangover enough to to pick them up and read them. <laughs> Any media that you can recommend? Um, we finished the Get Down. Which my opinions of it at the end are pretty much the same as the start. It's uneven, but the highs are really high, so I definitely think it is worth watching.、Uh, we have not watched anything else really, or had any other、um, any other media going on. Although it's October now, and so I'm starting to get the itch to watch Hocus Pocus again. Yes. So I'm gonna have to dig that out. Tis the season. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna have to dig that out and、uh, and and watch that because that is it's just a classic, and I will never get tired of it. It's just so excellent. Everything about that movie is so good.、Mm-hmm. Absolutely everything. <laughs>、mm-hmm. So yeah, I've gotta、um, find that. Well, I went home to California this past weekend, and I did watch movies on planes. Which I should have been working, but whatever. <laughs>、um, I did watch Captain America: Civil War, which I really liked. I、uh, <laughs> have not seen any of the other Captain America movies,、um, but I wasn't lost. Like I pretty much picked up the thread of of that movie very quickly. I didn't need to know pretty much anything else. I think they're very good at drawing the relationships for you, which is essentially Captain America having to choose between his two boyfriends, Iron Man or the Winter Soldier. Or at least that's how I read the movie anyway.、Um, so that was that was really enjoyable. I did watch half of X-Men Apocalypse, which was not enjoyable. <laughs>、um, 
a lot of great talent in that movie that I feel is utterly wasted. And um, also Zootopia. Zootopia. I've heard such good things about Zootopia. Oh my god, I ship Nick and Judy so hard. It's like not even (laughs) funny. (laughs) I don't care that they're different species. Their love can overcome it. Um, (laughs) It's so cute. It's so cute and adorable and heartfelt and funny. And the character of Nick, who is a fox, really reminds me of Fox Robin Hood. Oh. Yeah, so I'm I'm predisposed to like it anyway. So, but yeah, I, I highly, highly re- recommend Zootopia. If you have not seen it, I do believe it is on the U.S. Netflix. So if you have a subscription, you can just watch it right away, which I recommend. Like, as soon as you listen to this, just watch Zootopia because it's mm-hmm. great. So, so yeah, I think that's pretty much it for off-menu recommendations. Okay, so then let's move on to what you're asking. We have a question from Vanessa Lee on Twitter, which says, I massively struggle with dialogue in real life and on the page, to be honest. Any tips on making this more natural? I honestly, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a couple um, of tips. Just to let you know, Kelly's the one who taught me how to write dialogue, so... (laughs) Dialogue is like one of the things that I can do. I struggle mightily with world building, but I'm better at dialogue. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. Um, One of the things that I think can help in terms of the quality of your dialogue is actually just listening to people talk. Um, You know, I'm not going to tell you to like, outright go eavesdrop on people. What, no Harriet the spying on people? Yeah, but you certainly can. That definitely helps. Um, But even just paying attention to the way that people speak in your life around you, the way your friends speak, the way your parents speak, how is that different? What vocabulary is different? How is the cadence of their voices different? You know, when you are talking to the barista at your coffee shop, how do they sound? Like, just actually listening to the people around you speaking um, and doing it purposefully will be helpful because everybody speaks differently. There's differences between um, generations, there's differences regionally, there's differences in, um, you know, all kinds of different groups of people will speak in different ways. And so the more you just listen to the people around you, the more you'll become in tune to that. One of the things in terms of writing dialogue too, is to make sure that there's a point to why your characters are talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of times dialogue that's really achingly bad in books has no point and the conversation isn't going anywhere. The characters aren't learning anything from one another. The audience isn't learning anything from the conversation. It's just people talking and nothing is happening. When you are writing, you are orchestrating a story and people and a world. And so while a lot of times people in real life might just be talking for no reason, there's no such thing as that 
in your book. Everything in your book happens for a reason because you're deliberately choosing to include those things in your book and to not include other things. We very rarely see characters using the bathroom in books. We assume that it happens, but we don't need to see that because it's not important unless it is important to the plot, in which case somebody will add it in. But like, Think about it that way. You are putting things on the page because they have a purpose. And so when you're writing dialogue, your dialogue should have a purpose. And even the most mundane conversations have a point. And if the point isn't about the words themselves, you know, let's say you're writing about a teenager's conversation with her mom and she's trying to get permission to borrow the car and her mom doesn't want her to. And that's, you know, a pretty mundane conversation. Mom, I want to use the car. Well, no, I, you know, whatever. The words themselves aren't necessarily scintillating. They're not necessarily the most riveting conversation topics in the whole world. But what's going on underneath that dialogue? You know, is the daughter want the car for some, you know, nefarious purpose? Is she you know, trying to help out a friend who's in need and needs a ride somewhere. And so she feels that really urgently, you know, is she just picking a fight with her mom because she's angry at her mom about something else and is using the car as a way to cop some attitude? Like you infuse your dialogue scenes with an emotional momentum underneath all of your scenes. And so when people are struggling with dialogue, usually the first thing I try to ask them is, well, why are these people talking? What are they talking about? And what are they talking about on the surface level? And then what are they talking about on a deeper level? Yeah, I would agree that there has to be a point to why these two people are talking. Otherwise, why have them talk at all? And the point can't just be, I need to relay this piece of information to you. Yeah, that's the worst. Info dumps are the worst. The, as you know, Bob, conversation. Um, <laughs> Let me tell you about my family history going back three generations. There always needs to be an emotional reason people... Basically, all dialogue in books, I think, is communication, right? So why are these mm -hmm. two characters communicating and what are they trying to communicate to each other? emotionally, I think is a good place to start. And also I think there is a difference between realistic dialogue and naturalistic dialogue because really realistic dialogue is awful to read. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but naturalistic dialogue is just dialogue that sounds like something an actual person would say. But it's never going to be utterly realistic because everything in your book, if you're writing fiction anyway, is fiction. So, you know, having something be completely realistic is not necessarily important. Um, the other thing is, I think, exercise some restraint in terms... I, I know a lot of people have different sorts of weaknesses when it comes to dialogue. I think... For some, they struggle with making language sound naturalistic, in which case I think going around and just listening to people talk, the cadences of their speech and mm -hmm. how they talk, I think is really useful. I also think maybe reading a play would help you. Yep. Because a play, it does have, plays do have stage direction, um, but 
that only dictates the action of what is going on. It's, it doesn't dictate necessarily emotion, but it should. It still comes across in the dialogue anyway. Um, I think so. If you're struggling with the naturalistic dialogue, I think that's probably the best way to go about it and study it. I think if you're struggling with the as you know Bob problem, <laughs> then maybe rewrite the scene without dialogue. Maybe it's not important to have these two characters talk. So if you're if a conversation's happening and it's it just doesn't seem to go anywhere, then maybe just cut the conversation out entirely. So maybe there's that problem. And I think then there's the oh my characters are just too witty. Um Yes. And I do love good banter in books, don't get me wrong. But again, like anything else, this has to serve a point. It needs to move the story forward. So just having people come up with witty dialogue, you suffer from the Joss Whedon problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do like Joss Whedon, and I, um, but he has a very distinct way of having his characters talk. And um, it's very stylized and very stylistic, and it kind of works and kind of doesn't work. It sort of depends. Um, so, you know, in that case, just why are they bantering? What's the point of the banter? What does that show about their relationship with each other? I think that's really the point about banter. It's, you know, like in Much Ado About Nothing, the Shakespeare play, Beatrice and Benedict are pretty famous for squabbling at each other. And there is a reason why they're squabbling with each other. And it isn't because they hate each other. <laughs> At least that is my interpretation of why they're continually squabbling. <laughs> um, so I think those are kind of the three problems that I can think of when it comes to troubleshooting dialogue. Um, for me, I just didn't know what to do with dialogue initially. I think when Kelly was reading like early drafts of, of my then middle grade, I guess... Um, I, it was just awful. Like you, it was just awful, you guys. I didn't even know what I was. <laughs> but yeah, I think listening to people. I think reading plays is actually mm-hmm. a really good place to start because I think plays can yeah. teach you a lot about how people speak and how what people say or what they don't say conveys a lot of information. Okay, then. So our next question is from our blog and it's from Megan and I had a question as someone who can't seem to find a balance for this when should you take the time to research how do you know when you've done enough how do you find reliable material I am drawn primarily towards sci-fi and fantasy and I will either bluff my way unsuccessfully through things I'm not directly familiar with or I'll try in vain usually, to research the topic only to get sucked down rabbit holes. Oh, I know this problem so well. (laughs) (laughs) Bonus question. Once you have the research, do you have tips on incorporating that information without unnecessary descriptions or info dumps? Whoo, boy. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack here. Um, I am a Ravenclaw, as, as you guys know, and I love to research. I will often use research as a procrastination technique. If I don't want to write, I'll just be like, but I need more information. Uh, (laughs) I guess the question is, how do you know when you've done enough? It's when you are grasping for a reason to keep going in your research. There is a certain point where you have to say enough is enough and just start writing. And my... (laughs) 
For me, research tends tend to come tends to come in two parts. There's what I call like tone research or sort of general research. Just I like learning stuff. I like reading stuff. And a lot of times over the course of researching things or just reading about things, I get ideas. And I just kind of absorb that a little bit like a sponge and I kind of keep it at the back of my head. And this is before I even started a project at all. I just kind of file all the info. So in many ways, I'm just constantly researching. I'm just, re- but I'm not researching f- with a point. I'm just researching things that interest me because from the things that interest me, then things will start to emerge. Um, so that's generally before I start writing a project. Researching as you write, I tend to be of the fill holes as you go. Uh-huh. Because if I've done enough background research before I've started writing, I won't need to stop and, and kind of every stop every couple of seconds to research this thing. Um, and the thing about research, too, it's a little bit like world building. It's, you really only need to show the very tip of the iceberg to get your point across. And this is something that I struggle with. Sort of. I mean, I'm very nerdy. I love learning and I love teaching things like that. Um, but then, uh, so oftentimes I will write out an info dump and I'd be like, what is the point of this? Why does anyone need to know this? Does it give context to the situation? Does it, you know, I mean, who even talks like this? Like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of times I'll, I'll think about that. Um, and honestly, the point is, can what this person is saying be understood without info dump context. If that is the case, then remove it entirely or rewrite what you're trying to say without the info dump. And just, you know, because when we talk about things and when we're describing things to people, we're not going to sit and be like, well, in the history of so-and-so in 18, Uh blah, 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 this started and blah, blah, you know, we don't talk like that. So my husband kind of does, but most people don't. I can get very pedantic in that way too. I mean, it just asked me about Pottermore. Um, oh, <laughs> yep. Anyway, so, but most people don't, and and so people talk about things as if they already know it. So mm-hmm. then you don't need to explain anything. And and if you feel like there isn't enough context, or you have beta readers pointing out this doesn't make any sense, then maybe have a character ask, "What do you mean?" and then have your character explain. So there's kind of that aspect of it. But I am of the research as you go. Because the more important part is the story you're trying to tell. The research is what adds the details and specificity to your world building, particularly in the case if you write science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff you research is really just grounding your story in a real time and place, not a real time and place. And like, it, it doesn't have a contemporary analog, but just like it gives a tangible weight to the world you are creating. That is what research mm-hmm. is for. But the reason I say research as you go, as you write is because that's basically what it's going to be like for people who talk in general. Mm-hmm. You're just going to talk about something and then you're like, hang on a second, let me double check that. Let me Google that. Or, you know, people don't carry around all of this information all at once for the most part. Right. Um, except people like me and Kelly's husband. 
you know, who do. Who do. So I have a question because I think that this is coming up more and more in the context of researching. When you are writing about a culture that is not your own, how does your research need to change? Because we're kind of talking about researching historical periods. We're talking about researching, you know, scientific phenomenon or other things that are not, um, not at risk of being really appropriative. Well, researching a culture not your own, first of all, I would question why you would write from the point of view of a culture that is not your own. Yeah. Just, I mean, you can always include characters of that specific cultural background in your book and have them be major characters. I mean, I think Lee does this brilliantly in Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom. Now, granted, this is a fantasy world, but... There are characters of various cultures and races in her book, and they are all mm-hmm. are major characters. Um, but I I do sort of question why people write books from the point of view of of a character that isn't of, of a character in a culture that's not their own. Um, but in terms of research, so say you are writing a character from a different culture, it, if it's not a POV character, but you still want to do justice by that character. I would read primary source material. So I would read, you know, especially if you're writing across racial lines. Like I would read, for example, if you're writing an African-American or black character, I would read books by black authors. I would read memoirs. I would consume their entertainment. I think you learn a lot about a culture by consuming what they consume. For example, I learn more about Korean culture watching Korean dramas than anything else. I myself am of Korean descent, but I, you know, have to do research into that myself. But, um, you know, absorbing someone else's culture, absorbing their media, I think, says a lot about the way they communicate with each other, the way they relate to the world. Um, you know, follow people on Twitter. I think Twitter is, in my opinion, is a really great place to learn because there are a lot of people there who are, who will talk very candidly about their experiences as a black person, as an Asian person, as a Latinx person, or, you know, as a disabled person, a queer person, etc. There's a lot of really good firsthand primary sources on Twitter and of course, in, term, in, in terms of research, you should hire sensitivity readers mm-hmm. you sh- and hire them. <laughs> yes, pay them for their labor, absolutely. Pay them for their emotional labor. It is extremely exhausting for somebody to read work that is insensitive to their culture or, or that dehumanizes them. So pay them. That's incredibly important. Um, and if you can't afford to pay them, then question why you're writing this character in the first place or offer some sort of barter, offer them a service in exchange. If you can't pay them the cash. Um, so that sort of research that is more along the lines, in my opinion, of immersion. This is something that you should do before you write. 
This is all something that you should do before you write, not something you do as you write. Because, and I think maybe that's really it. The philosophy of research is immerse yourself in research before you start writing. Mm-hmm. Then you start writing, and then you do additional research to fill in what I call the logistical holes, the science, yeah. the history, the whatever, the logistical holes, the little bits of information that crop up as necessary. So that's kind of my research philosophy. Yeah, I think that's good. I think those are all really excellent, helpful, practical points. Okay, we have one final question from the blog. It's from Sarah, who says, was wondering if you could, if you two could have an episode dedicated to what happens to the manuscript in terms of editing after it gets accepted by an agent. How willing is an agent to accept a manuscript that has significant plot or character issues but shows a lot of promise? Will they accept the author on the assumption that they can help help them clean it up? And the same question for the editorial side as well. The answer to this one is it depends. <laughs> On a lot of things. It depends on the agent, whether or not the agent is an editorial agent. Agents more and more are doing editorial work with their clients. Um, it is a really competitive market, and most agents want to send the best manuscript possible out on submission. And so they'll work with their authors on getting that manuscript as polished as possible. Um, but some agents are not, some agents don't do editorial work and they're going to want something that's more ready to go. It also is going to depend on, um, your agent's workload and what stage of their career they're at. If they are a new agent and really hungry for new clients, they might have more time to work with authors on doing several rounds of editorial work, whereas an established agent might not have as much time to dedicate to um, going over something editorially. So it really depends on a lot of different things. Um, you know, each agent has their own threshold of when they think something is ready and when something isn't. A lot of times you'll see agents who are interested in your work but don't think it's quite ready yet um, will request a revise and resubmit where they'll tell you, I really like your manuscript. I think it's got a lot of strengths, but I don't think it's ready yet. And they'll kind of give you a little bit of feedback and ask you to do some work on another draft and then send it to them at that point and see if it's ready. Um, so for the agenting side of things, I think there's a lot more room. Um, editorially, I think editors are looking for... For a work that is polished and maybe just needs some direction or some sharpening or some editors do buy books on on proposals. Some editors, you know, buy books on a half book and the synopsis of what's going to come next. That's pretty rare. I think most writers, most debut writers certainly um need to have a pretty polished manuscript for an editor to pick it up for the most part. But again, it all depends. I'll say having been an acquiring editor, you need to be able to envision the book on submission in the market. You need to 
when you are reading it, it's a little bit different, I think, when you are acquiring as an agent, when you are looking to represent a client, you're looking at the potential. Um, but in order for an editorial person to acquire a manuscript, you have to see a place for it on the market. You have to con conceive of how you will publish it. You will have to conceive of who you will target, how you will market it, how you will position it, because all of that information has to be presented at editorial board. And then you mm -hmm. have to convince everyone else of your vision so they will give you money. Um, so in terms of how much editing that actually means, it means that your story has to be more or less intact. I don't necessarily mean it has to be perfect. It doesn't, but basically the beginning, the middle and the end have to be more or less sturdy, have to be pretty solid in, in that, you know, what the premise is and the mm -hmm. story and the arc and the end you can, you know, if, if one of those things is a little bit shaky and needs a little bit of propping up and a little polishing, that's, that's fine. That's immaterial when it comes to acquiring a book, but the structure of your book has to be sound when you, when an editor is going to acquire it. Um, because to be honest, you know, the reason an agent can take on a manuscript that needs more work at the stage of representation is because they don't make money until you do so they can work with you. Mm -hmm. Whereas the editor has to put money up front and then trust that the author can deliver. And yeah. to be honest, not every author can and does. I have asked for revise and resubmits from agents uh, to pass on to their clients. You know, if, if my editorial advice, you know, res resonates with your client, then, you know, here, here are my thoughts. This is what I need the book to be. And if they can't deliver that, then I can't buy it. And that's often why an editor will decline a manuscript even after you've revised it for them because mm -hmm. the revision just wasn't up to what they were hoping the book could be. Because yeah. all editors, like I said, have to envision a place on the market for the book they want to acquire. And if that book doesn't fit that place in the market they'd see for it, then they can't buy it. It's kind of as simple as that. And they can't convince mm -hmm. everybody else that they can buy it. Yeah. And that's really the key thing is that they're not just, I mean, that's the thing about agents too. They're acquiring for their list. They are not necessarily right. beholden to the agency as a whole. Whereas the editor is, is beholden to the publisher. So they have to convince the publisher. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the difference in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, I think those are really good points. All right, so we can move on to what what you are saying. So here is a review from Write Like You're Running Out of Time. Nice Hamilton reference in your a review plus. name there. Never miss an episode. I discovered this podcast only a month or two ago, but in between new episodes, I've been catching up on old ones. Every single one is informative and entertaining. I'm not even scared to click play on an episode titled Contracts and Clauses, for example, because the hosts are that good. I want to be their friend. Aww. Uh, thank you. I That Contracts and Clauses episode is near and dear to my heart, so it, <laughs> it makes me very happy that you're not absolutely terrified to hit play on that one. <laughs> Aw, well, thank you. 
that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to continue our series on adaptations, and we'll be talking about adaptations that are transformative. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. And... For those of you that may have contacted me through my website for editorial services, I just realized today that I'd set up a forwarding service to forward everything to one mailbox, and I did it incorrectly. So if you haven't heard from me in a couple weeks, I have figured out what the problem is, and I'll be reaching out to you shortly. I greatly apologize. (laughs) I am not the most uh, email-savvy person on the face of the earth, and so, um, yeah, my apologies to you and I'll be reaching out to you soon. (laughs) Uh, Well, in the meantime, you can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye.